0: Hi, it's Mark Pack here and this time in place of a normal episode of Nevermind The Bar Chart, I'm rerunning my appearance on the excellent Politics of Sound podcast with Ian Carnegie. Ian interviewed me a few weeks ago, talking about how we were all coping with coronavirus, what made me a Liberal Democrat, my history of ordering cheese toasties on the internet, the song I would pick as a Liberal Democrat party anthem, and more. So I do hope you enjoy this episode of the Politics of Sound, and if you do, please do go and subscribe to that podcast. Ian interviews a whole range of guests, far more interesting and with much better music taste than me. So I'm sure that you will really enjoy his show.
1: The Politics of Sound with Ian Carnegie. By the way, where'd you meet him? I met him at the candy store. He turned around and smiled at me. You get the picture? Yes, we see. And leader of the pack. Welcome back to the Politics of Sound. My visitor to the record shop this month is, indeed, the leader of the pack. Mark Pack, that is, co-leader and president of the Liberal Democrats. If it's true that some achieve greatness and some have greatness thrust upon them, then I think that the latter is possibly true of him, thrust into the spotlight after Jo Swinson lost her seat at the general election. So where now for the Liberal Democrats? What sort of role does music play in his life via his all-time favourite albums? And then, of course, what of his celebrated love of all things chocolate? This and much more on the June edition of The Politics of Sound. I hope you enjoy it. Mark, Pat, welcome to the Politics of Sound. How are you this morning and where are you?
0: Well, lovely to join you. I am, of course, safely ensconced at home, which for me is North London, um, and it also is home of a remarkably larger number of supermarkets. I hadn't quite twigged before how many supermarkets there are within half an hour's walk of my front door, um, but I'm mightily relieved about that at the moment. And you're keeping
1: up to date with your purchasing of toilet roll and all the rest of these essentials?
0: Yeah, I'm quite lucky in that I was a, a Cardo SmartPass customer, and so they prioritised people at risk, quite rightly, and then also their long-term regular customers. And it was one of those... Things I've for ages been thinking about, shall I cancel it? Is it really worth the money? And now I'm... Sometimes inertia is our enemy. In this case, inertia has very much been my friend. What tips and tricks do you have for getting through the day at the moment? I think... I mean, a lot of the advice is fairly commonplace. You know, the things about still try to have some sort of structure to the day, actually getting dressed in the morning as you normally would and so on. The thing that I found maybe not difficult but has made it a little bit harder for me to find the right rhythm of the day was i had switched anyway to working from home at the beginning of the year so in many ways i am tremendously lucky because i was expecting this year to be a bit unusual and my patterns in the days to take a while to get used to and all of that and of course having switched to working from home means that having to be inside you know most of the day most days of the week isn't the massive change in lifestyle that is for lots of other people and um, but because of that it also means i have not yet really found the right rhythm to the day so i'm still trying like i've tried setting my alarm clock ludicrously early to be able to go out for for a walk and get some exercise when there's hardly anyone around and have you kept to that no i i always thought that i was more a wake up a bit later person and trying to set my alarm clock really early has confirmed that <laughs> so um so we'll see i'll 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 stick with the experiment for a bit longer because the thing I've noticed is that when I feel tired in the day is really dependent on factors other than how much sleep I've had the night before. This is unusual well i I think it's partly that the open plan office I used to work in may have been one that maybe. Encouraged fatigue. I know there's quite a lot of research and a fair amount of controversy around office fatigue syndrome and and, and the like. But I do wonder if in part that may have, yeah that may have may, may have been a real factor uh, in in my case. And um, but also I think a lot of it is just whether you really get stuck into something or not. And it's very noticeable when you're working from home in a relatively undisturbed way. If you were to ask me to guess at what point it's become 11 a.m. The the accuracy of my guesses would vary wildly from day to day. Sometimes I can be really surprised it's 11am already. And other days it's what? Surely, surely we must be into the afternoon now. How <laughs> can it possibly not be well beyond 11am?
1: And the other thing about it is that there's an old phrase, this person doesn't know what day of the week it is. But when you're in this sort of lockdown and this mm. sort of environment, actually, many people, including myself, struggle to remember what day of the week Mm. it is it all seems to merge into one yeah
0: i've got two or three things that i have on a regular weekly schedule um i mean relatively boring things like when i do my washing um but also things like i have a pending folder in my email for messages that need to be come back to at some point so maybe it's like copies of orders that something I've ordered that hasn't yet arrived so I'll have all set of emails in a pending folder and I go through those once a week um on a normally on a Friday or a Saturday so there's a few things like that that by sticking to doing those on the normal days gives a sense of Monday to Thursday is different from Friday to Sunday the one thing I did do a couple of weeks ago which was just I would have laughed a year ago if you told me I'd, I'd done this was i ordered at breakfast online because on a sunday morning i do like going out for a brunch to a local cafe um, i just find that's a nice relaxing sort of way to spend a Sunday morning to catch up on a bit of reading and so on. And of course that's not possible at the moment. So I did use Deliveroo to get uh, breakfast delivered to me a couple of Sunday mornings ago. And I'm just the, I mean, just the, I'm basically, I ordered toast via the internet. I mean, you can't really get more absurd than that, but it was quite nice. This Um, is
1: the biggest exclusive we've ever got on the politics of sound.
0: Yeah. I did a couple of years ago, subscribe to a service that went bust Um which you know you won't be surprised when I tell you what it what it is which was a service to order ch- cheese toasties by post <laughs> and the idea was that you got say once a month or once a fortnight whatever frequency you wanted you got all of the ingredients to make a really nice cheese toasty and it rotated around what the recipes were so lots of different cheeses and all of that so I thought oh this could be quite fun as a as a thing to have a go at and um, Clearly, not very many other people thought the same as me, because sadly, they went out of business.
1: Your life has changed massively over the last six months. You're now president of the Liberal Democrats, and you're also co-leader along with Ed Davey. You've taken on these roles at a time of particular challenge for the party. What do you see broadly as the priorities moving forward?
0: I think there are two. One is the immediate human cost of coronavirus. You know, most weeks I'm having to send condolence and sympathy messages to the relatives of several Liberal Democrat members who have passed away, uh, not all of them from coronavirus, but definitely it's sadly very clear that the volume of those bereavements has significantly increased in the last few weeks. And people quite often talk about political parties as being their family. It can be a little bit of a cliche, but at times like this, that is really what it feels like. So helping all of us in this extended political family through the crisis is crucial. And I think there's uh, a lot that is quite similar, I guess, if you're not Into politics, people quite often have a slightly cynical view about political parties and the like. And so the analogy I quite often draw is a bit like being a supporter of a football club and that sense of community that people get from that. And if you think when there is then a bereavement, um, let's say maybe a well-known long-standing fan passes away, just how much that means to other fans of that football club, other supporters... With politics, it's quite similar. And then looking to the broader political picture, obviously the big challenge for the Liberal Democrats is relevancy. And I say relevancy as I genuinely think there is a clearly a big gap in the political spectrum for a Liberal Party in the UK. And the challenge for the Liberal Democrats is that we don't have any God-given right to assume that we can fill it. But the opportunity is there and we need to do much better than we have done generally in the past, uh, best part of a decade now in filling that gap.
1: You raise a very interesting point there. Mm. It has been commented on that maybe the Conservatives and the Labour parties have been displaying symptoms of possibly moving towards a more central position where does that
0: leave the Liberal Democrats do you think? Well I think if you look at Labour for example they are very torn you know they face a genuine dilemma between trying to appeal to more Liberal and less Liberal voters. Certainly under Jeremy Corbyn the Labour Party did quite well at hoovering up support amongst for example Metropolitan Liberals can be a little bit of a caricature that phrase but there's definitely some validity to it on the other hand you look at the sorts of seats that Labour is most concerned about winning back at the next general election they're often seats that for example have voted quite heavily leave at the referendum so Labour is being pulled in two directions at once and I think uh, you know when Labour has been most successful that has been a strength being able to have such a broad coalition but at the moment that is a real weakness for the Labour Party and an opportunity for the Liberal Democrats because Labour is not really going to try to go all in on appealing to that Liberal vote given those other conflicting electoral pressures it faces and likewise with the Conservatives I think it was really striking how in that initial batch of major government announcements you know, the interventions to help the economy and households and the country through coronavirus the Conservatives started with help for business and it was only several days later that they got to help for households and obviously the well-being of households depends on business but it, it did really show where their priorities are that their priority was about business and it was about how do we reduce tax burdens how do we help the cash flow of businesses all good sensible things to think about a crisis moment like this but that was what came first not how do we deal with the financial crisis in households? So for all that under Boris Johnson, the Conservatives are showing some flashes of non-traditional right-wing policies, such as talking about spending lots of money on infrastructure investment. Again, you can see where the heart of the Conservative Party is. So I think you, you look at both of those other parties and there is a gap there. There is still a gap there, and it's not one that we can assume in the Liberal Democrats that we we can fill. But we showed flashes of our ability to fill that gap last year. What we need to do now is is learn from the things we got wrong last year, in particular, and of course from the the few things that we got right last year. There were some, for example, a fantastic, amazing set of council election results that we had back back last May. It's weird to think that's less than a year ago.
1: Well, I was interviewing Tom Brake for this very show at mm. that time and those results had just come out and he was on a very big high, the whole party was. Mm. It's that idea of how you get back to that and then build on that, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and what I think those local elections last May illustrated because they were the best in the party's history. Uh, you know, far better than the party had achieved when riding much higher in the opinion polls, you know, years back, you know, best best number of gains in the party's history, was the strength of our grassroots campaigning network, and in a way, it was that that then put us back on the national political stage, and that's been a consistent pattern in the party's roller coaster history over the decades. We saw that with a round of council election results in the early nineties that helped put the party back on. The political stage we've seen it also quite often with spectacular parliamentary by-election results where it's that grassroots effort in a particular area that puts the party back on the national stage and at the moment you know i, I guess most people listening to this won't realize just how many liberal democrat council leaders or co-leaders there are around the country there are 50 five zero liberal democrats who are running councils either as the leader of a the council directly or a co-leader in coalition with someone else, which shows that even after the battering we've taken in many ways in the last few years, there is a huge strength in our grassroots and seeing what Lib Dem council leaders are doing and Lib Dem directly elected mayors are doing in places like Watford, helping their communities through coronavirus is a real reminder that there's there's real importance and real life in local government.
1: You mentioned family. I just want to pick up on that idea and the notion that possibly the Liberal Democrats being your family in some ways. Mm. Your upbringing was in North London. Was that within a family of liberals? Where did this all come from?
0: That's a really good question, because I joined the Liberal Democrats for the least glorious of reasons. (laughs) I joined the Liberal Democrats when at university and a friend of mine who was running the Lib Dem Society told me that they needed 30 members to qualify for student union funding and they currently had 27 and asked uh sorry 28 and asked would I join and I obviously the reason I said yes was I I obviously had a bit of affinity with the party you know it, it, it wasn't like they were asking me to join the BNP or something that I you know, recoiled in horror from. Um, but it was a pretty inglorious reason. In retrospect, I also think that that number was quite a cunning one to pick, because if it said 29, I'd have thought, oh, you can get someone else. And if it said, say, 23, I'd have thought, oh, you know, what's the point of me joining? You know, you've got to get loads. Which so is an extraordinary number. story.
1: Like, who, I mean, you've gone on to be president yeah. of this party. Yeah, who could so have predicted
0: that? <laughs> <laughs> and in fact the chap who signed me up subsequently left stood for the conservatives at a general election unsuccessfully against a Lib Dem MP so it's yeah it's I think things probably didn't turn out like either of us quite expected in that conversation at the time so so thinking about it looking back I, I had sort of generally quite liked the alliance when I'd been sort of following political news You know in my sort of earlier teenage years and the household that i grew up in it was the bbc and the times with a basic media outlets plus lbc radio um and and you can see why if that was the bbc and the times that would have given me probably more awareness of what the alliance was up to and probably a more favorable picture of the alliance than if it had been a different media mix in in the household yes um and 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 I I think as as much as I can remember what just attracted me it was that very 1980s alliance pitch of both the other parties keep on messing things up we keep on swinging between extremes what we need is just a bit of sensible moderation and in the years since then I think I've become more aware of the downsides of thinking the answers to problems is just try to nicely find a midpoint between the two extremes. Um, But as a general sense of, look, the other two parties do really regularly mess up, that certainly is very much with me.
1: Do you think there was something already in your subconscious when you were approached in that way that made you think, yes, I want to grasp this?
0: I think certainly when I joined the society, I didn't have any real intention of wanting to get involved in politics i'm not one of those people who dreamed about being prime minister from a a young age and so on even though i was quite interested in political history from a young age so i could certainly name more u.s presidential candidates than the average english teenager could (laughs) that never had parlayed into an ambition to get into politics myself in as much as there was a particular policy area though I think it, it would have been electoral reform because I did get quite interested in that from a relatively young age and during the 1980s including things like John Cleese's famous party political broadcast. <laughs> all about proportional representation. That the, you know, If you were if you were a supporter of PR, the Alliance very much stood out, certainly in England and pretty much as well in Scotland and Wales, given how much weaker the nationalists were by the time we got into the 80s in both of those countries as well. You know, The Alliance really stood out as the party to support if that was the thing that motivated you.
1: You were at the University of York At the same time as a certain young Vince Cable Mm. was contesting the seat for the SDP, did your paths cross at all?
0: No. In fact, I think I was at the university just after um, he would have fought one election. Um, So, yeah, our paths didn't didn't cross at all. The next election that there was when I was at the university, we had a, um, a different candidate. And actually, I did get a bit involved. Uh, in her campaign and that certainly helped get me the political bug um, I get the thing that perhaps most got me into political campaigning in many ways was Willie Rennie um, and I'm not sure that who is now our leader in the Scottish Parliament I'm not sure Willie in fact almost certainly Willie won't remember the first time that he met me because it was at a parliamentary by-election in Scotland that I had gone to help and I'd previously gone to help in a parliamentary by-election elsewhere and it hadn't been a very organised campaign. And we'd been given some leaflets to deliver with a map and marked up the road we were meant to go along. But actually, the road was a railway line because they'd mucked up highlighting <laughs> the place. So we, it was all it, it, it was not a horrible experience, but it wasn't the sort of thing that made me think, yeah, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. However, when I then went to the by-election in Scotland, the uh, Kincardine and D side by-election and Willie was doing the front of house, he was so fun and welcoming that that really did make me think, yeah, this is, this is the sort of thing I'm going to do more often now. So Willie probably has a fair degree of responsibility for me ending up getting yeah, properly involved in the party over a long period of time.
1: For you, it, I sense there is a fascination not just with politics, but with political process mm. and how it operates at a fairly profound level. Do you think that's true?
0: Definitely, and the thing that always really interests me is the degree to which a particular procedural or logistical detail has a massive knock-on effect. And sometimes the, the apparently insuperable procedural detail, actually with enough imagination or political force of will, can be brushed aside and become irrelevant but sometimes that detail can be massively telling and I think I first got interested in that sort of way of looking at the world actually more from military history than political history was reading some of A.J.P. Taylor's works on the origin of the First World War and to horribly simplify the nuance of of AJP Taylor's work was he made the argument that in part the reason the first world war started was because the railway marshalling yards at Aachen were not big enough as in once germany started mobilizing and the trains started rolling westwards they had to carry on and invade because there wasn't enough space for the mobilizing troops to build up because the railway marshalling yards at Aachen were not large enough the whole historiography of the causes of the First World War are hugely complicated and controversial even now. And I'm not sure I would, I would really stick with that as a, as a plausible explanation these days. But that basic idea that sometimes there's a little detail that has really quite unexpected and profound effects very much did interest me. And you have that in politics all the time with the details of how procedures work and the like. And especially when you mix it with things like votes in parliament, where the voting margin can be tiny. So one of the possibly most important votes in British parliamentary history was in the 19th century, back when the Great Reform, what became the Great Reform Act of 1832 was going through parliament. And there was one crucial vote that passed by just one vote now one never quite knows the what if what would have happened had that vote gone differently what would have had you know would the great reform act in some form still have happened would the government have fallen and something completely you know one can never be sure i did actually write a a what if for a hypothetical history book uh, uh, quite a few years back about what if that vote had gone the other way. But it's that little detail. It's, it's like the butterfly wing effect. We think, well, if th- that person hadn't been ill or that person had done something, to me. there's a similar one uh, about, for example, the Labour deputy leadership election in the early 1980s that there's there's a really interesting little nuance about the way in which the votes were counted that had the rules been slightly different Tony Benn would have won that Labour deputy leadership election and who knows how Labour Party and indeed British history might have turned out differently as a result. So it's, it's that thought that there's this little detail, this little lever maybe that someone can pull.
1: Tony Benn, 49.574. <laughs> Dennis Haley,
0: 50.426. Because one thing that implies is a view of the world where individuals can really make a difference you know that thought well if that one person voted differently something major would have happened that wouldn't have happened otherwise that says that what we as individuals can do is important we're not just the victims the passengers on you know, long-term huge economic and social and and uh, environmental forces, but we can change what happened. So I can see how those different thought processes all probably coalesced in finding the Liberal Democrats a comfortable political home. Are we
1: doomed to repeat our mistakes, do you think?
0: I wouldn't say doomed to repeat them. But history quite often throws up similar challenges and we're not always that good at learning the lessons from last time round. And I think we're seeing a bit of that at the moment with coronavirus that there's been a really rapid acceptance of the need to change our lives in massive ways. Quite remarkable, really, if you think that in countries like britain with you know to put it mildly a controversial prime minister and quite a divided set of political views we've basically gone from loads of people saying don't trust the government you know they don't don't want to listen to what they say they're all wrong to so, oh the government has told us to do this right now we must absolutely do that and obviously people have managed that segue a little bit by maybe preferring to quote scientists rather than the prime minister but essentially the establishment who we would normally have described a year ago as being so largely untrusted and all of that you know has told us we've got to massively change our lives and pretty much most of us you know pretty much nearly all of us have agreed to do so or likewise in Hong Kong which you know until very recently had huge numbers of people out on the streets protesting again they've switched to massively changing their lives in a way that you know if you're a Hong Kong protester you might even have thought well is there maybe a degree of cynicism about all this health advice because it's a way to stop us protesting? You know, none of that has really been a factor. People have switched. Man- so there's a real optimism one can take from our willingness to face up to problems. There's obviously a particular controversy in Britain about whether the government was three or four weeks too slow in doing that. But... Broadly, if you take the broad global picture, you can see how humanity has been able to react. You contrast that, though, with the continuing lethargy over climate change. And you sort of think, I suspect we're sadly not going to properly learn the lesson of coronavirus as applicable to climate change. I will be very much working hard to try and make it the case that we do. And it's crucial that we do, but it's quite likely a lot of people will take the coronavirus lesson, think how awful it was that, say, the British government didn't react more quickly, and we'll then leave that to one side and go back to not taking climate change as seriously as we need to.
1: Now, I'm speaking to a fellow podcaster. What was the thinking behind the creation of your own podcast, Never Mind the Bar Charts?
0: It was twofold one was curiosity let's just give it a go see what happens which has been one of my i guess abiding traits with doing stuff online i quite like just giving something a little bit of a whirl for a while see whether it takes off see whether it doesn't and underpinning that is a lot of experience both in terms of what i do myself but professionally when i've been advising you know others everyone from small charities to big multinationals that the route to doing something successful online very often involves try 10 things and seven will fail badly, two will be mediocre, one will be massively successful. So don't try to just find the one amazingly successful thing and only do that, but rather play the field, try lots of things. So it was partly that, and this is interesting, lots of people talking about podcasting, let's give it a whirl, etc. The other was a sense of the speed with which podcasting was taken off and thinking, well, if this is something that I end up both enjoying and ends up being successful getting in at a relatively early stage is often the best because that can help establish an audience and the like. And therefore there was a little bit of no, let's get around to doing this now. The actually the the, the final third reason was, was a, a technical one in that I found the combination of ways of making it very easy to do the podcast. So, Stephen Tall, who I did the first season with, and then other people who I've had on as interview guests in the second season. I've always gone for people who are used to being able to do things like radio interviews. So being able to talk in a way that requires relatively little editing and using, I use the Anchor platform. I know there are other good podcasting platforms available as well, but using a platform that makes it really easy to record on your phone just trim the beginning and the end, upload it, and then bing, your podcast is out. So that the overhead of doing the trial was minimal. And in fact, quite often used to record episodes in a room that was several floors up. And my little challenge to myself was to get the podcast live before the lift got me to the ground floor. Wow, that's quick. Uh, exactly. And, you know, people who, who listen to some of the variable audio quality. I think, Mark, you should have taken longer. But the crucial thing there was thinking about, well, if this is going to work, I want it to be sustainable. And the idea of recording something that then generates audio files that lurk on my to-do list and are sort of staring back at me guiltily day after day, hey, you've not edited and published me yet. That, I thought, I don't want to go down that road. So go for something with pretty quick turnaround. Since I've got into it more, I have started doing a bit more editing uh, of the audio files, but I'm still a pretty light editor compared to people who do podcasting really seriously.
1: Did you feel there was a gap in the market for a Lib Dem-based podcast?
0: Yeah, there uh, were at the time a couple of other sort of Lib Dem friendly podcasts around which are very good um they are also particularly the Limehouse podcast has a very distinctive style and some people will prefer that style to the Nevermind the bar charts and you know great uh but it did make me feel that because there was that very distinctive style to the Limehouse, pod, Limehouse podcast there might be therefore a gap for another another one that takes a slightly different take and judging by the Uh, you know number of people who listen typically to an episode there is so thank you everyone (laughs) who is a listener
1: including myself I have to say now we've spoken about history we've spoken about politics we've spoken about the lockdown but we haven't spoken about chocolate (laughs) and I think it is way overdue do you feel that you're something
0: of a connoisseur Uh, no (laughs) basically because I prefer milk chocolate with without ludicrously high cocoa percentages so if you're a proper chocolate connoisseur you would hate my general chocolate consumption choices and i have done things like um i went on a chocolate walking tour around central london a couple of years back which was fabulous sounds great yeah i i definitely can get the enjoyment out of really getting into the nuances of different high percentage cocoa chocolates and the like and I've, I've even been to the sort of chocolate fair in London a couple of times and it's quite fun talking to stallholders about what's the you know what's the next big thing a few years ago adding salt to chocolate was the big trend and now that's become pretty mainstream you can get chocolate with salt in it even in Thornton, from Thornton's and the like um, and I remember actually having a chat with the year after that salt trend had really taken off at a chocolate fair with somebody about well what do you think what's going to be the next salt so I can do <laughs> a passing impression of a chocolate connoisseur <laughs> but my, my basic chocolate eating tastes yeah proper connoisseurs would really look down on
1: As you know, this is not just politics, it's not just chocolate, but it's music as well. So, this morning, I actually went to my piano, and uh, we're going to give you a little bit of a test of your chocolate knowledge now. Oh, no. But in a musical way. (laughs) Yes, you didn't expect this. Now, what I've done is I've played... Oh, dearie me. You will remember that there's been some very fine advertisements Mm. over the years (laughs) for chocolate. So, what I'm going to do, I'm going to play you (laughs) now. Control yourself, man. Which... Adford, or which chocolate, was being advertised with this.
0: Crikey. I don't recognise that at all. Mm.
1: Well, that was only the crumbliest flakiest milk chocolate was for
0: flake oh yeah now that you say that it sort of makes sense but it's interesting that i think about those flake adverts i don't really have any i don't have any memory of the chop of the music in the way that say the opal fruit adverts from my youth I that you know there was a very distinctive tune and the memory is as much you know i'd then try to sing the tune. But, you know, it, I think if you were to play that tune, I would recognise that tune. But yeah, with uh, I guess it's like if you were to play the music from the Milk ads. likewise, thinking about it, there was a little bit of a musical jingle at the end, but I'm not sure I would recognise it. How well we're going to move on
1: to the second one it's a bad start i have to say so here we go we've got this only got we've got five Oh of my these. goodness
0: right um if anyone listening place a bet on me getting zero by the way rush to your online bookmakers now <laughs> <laughs> here we go here's the second one
1: see if you can get this one here we go that's it what oh, do you know what it was
0: no crikey
1: i'm going to give you a i'm going to give you a hint here i'm going to have to give you a hint made by fries and it had a sort of purple colored jelly in the middle of it
0: oh there's fries turkish was it fries turkish delight
1: (laughs) it was it was yes now the next one it has a sort of slightly macho image i have to say the way i've played it it sounds a bit like Chaz and dave (laughs) this is number three anyway
0: was that That's, I think we're dis, we are discovering quite starkly here how I treat m- music generally as a little bit of background that is nice <laughs> but not to be have too much attention paid to it this was a uh, it was a trucker Oh uh, is this Yorkie? it was Yorkie, yorkies yes. yes and it's interesting with each of these as prompted by you i've worked out what they are the thing that sticks in the thing that comes to my mind is is visual it's not audio so that's interesting the the th- picture that came to my mind was the trucker in their cab in the lorry and similarly with the fries it was the the person on their own near the end of the the tv ad that i remember it's yeah it my memory is clearly much more pictorial that's my cover story anyway
1: (laughs) yes this is my excuse i'm sticking to it okay we've got two more this next one i think is the hardest one
0: that's a nice yeah, tune that feels like it should be an ad featuring lots of children who get a piece of chocolate just at the end that that's the
1: well story. it's actually a little bit more of a I think it's maybe more of an adult chocolate than that it's something that you might get possibly at Christmas and it's round and it has a slightly textured outer small round balls of chocolate wrapped in gold oh paper it's in the sort of ambassador
0: bottle. isn't it it's Ferrero Rocher it is Ferrero Rocher it is I think we've got to
1: end on a on a high here this is one I think you might get this is your last one come on let's end on a high <laughs>
0: Is that Cadbury's? Is it a Cadbury's dairy milk? Yeah. You've got yes. it. We've got, we've got a right answer. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, again, I think the way I've, I've learned something about how my mind works. Um, so whilst everyone else has been able to enjoy my complete ineptitude, <laughs> I've, um, <laughs> I've realised how essentially what I was trying to do was to think about the mood that that music generates and then try to think well what's the story or the image that I can remember from a a tv ad that it's it's not directly remembering the music um which illustrates how you know as as I mentioned when we were chatting ahead of this show I wouldn't really count myself as a as a music fan I quite like having music on in the background or say if I'm walking and I've got bored with listening to audiobooks and podcasts switching to listening to some music but it's not something I tend to give a lot of direct attention to
1: well you've picked some very very interesting albums Mm. from the politics of sound shop and indeed now as your prize for doing so well in the quiz we're going to allow you a visit to the politics of sound (laughs) Sound record shop are you ready to go in mark back absolutely absolutely So, Mark, how was your visit to the Politics of Sam record shop?
0: It was very enjoyable, very enjoyable.
1: Well, you've come out with a classic album of the 1980s, uh, which has, I think, some political overtones, but maybe misconstrued in some
0: ways. What's the album? Yeah, so the album is Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. And as you say, the title track itself is often misused as being a rip-roaring, tub-thumping, patriotic song when in fact it's yeah. You know, when you listen to the lyrics about the experience of fighting in Vietnam it's anything but that it's a very very different tone to the way the song sometimes gets misused. The album, I think it's the first album I bought. When was that? When it came out? Yeah, so when it came out back in the early 1980s. If I remember rightly, the first album I had, so as in being given as a present, was an ABBA album, but I'm pretty sure Bruce Springsteen was the first album I bought. And it was quite a tough choice. I nearly picked his Live in Dublin album instead, but in the end, the fact that it's one of the first, if not the first albums I bought, thought... Uh, For sentimental reasons, "Born in the USA, just the edge in my pick.
1: During the election campaign in America, I think both Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale both mentioned it, talked about it, used it. And Bruce Springsteen very much distanced Mm. himself from that, but in fact got involved... In John Kerry's 2004 Mm. presidential campaign with the song No Surrender, were you aware of his politics and his ideas behind some of the songs?
0: Yeah, because I remember Bruce Springsteen getting a little bit of controversy in the UK in the 80s over his support for the miners' strike, for example. Uh, So he did, he featured as a political figure in that sense, you know. in a way that's, I guess, quite commonplace now, but was a little bit less common back in the pre-social media age, where you would maybe less easily find out or hear what the political views are of musicians. And um, but Bruce Springsteen was very much somebody associated with the politics, you know, back in back in that time. And I think the thing that I particularly liked and still like about his songs, especially those on Born in the USA, is the way they tell a complete little story uh, born in the usa does that very much but also things like uh glory days <music> is a little story it's what if you were sat opposite somebody say on a train or sat next to them on a plane or whatever it's a story you can imagine them telling you. Uh, and and so I, I, I like that element to it. The other thing, of course, is just the, uh, the quality of the music. And in particular, as I sort of briefly mentioned earlier, I tend to treat music a little bit as background noise and one of the occasions where I particularly listen to music is if say I've been listening to audiobooks and podcasts but I'm maybe walking up the hill to home and it's a bit a bit tired and you know to listening to a bit of music for a little bit of pe- put a little bit of pep in my step yes uh, for the last the last haul home then the sort of rhythms that you get with something like Ball in the USA much more so than say some of Springsteen's earlier works is is really good for that give me a little bit of zest to get get home.
1: You've already spoken about your interest in American politics, which goes back many years. Do you think your interest and fascination with Bruce Springsteen maybe ties in with that in some way?
0: I think it's a coincidence rather than there being a direct connection, particularly because I guess my interest in American politics is very much at the sort of grand national stage. So things like US presidential elections and the like. And Bruce Springsteen's lyrics are very political, but they're much more about social history in a way. They're much more about the immediate impact on people's day-to-day lives. And there's definitely an intersection between the two. But if you take board in the USA, which is about the Vietnam War, you know, Springsteen's lyrics are about the human cost on individuals. Whilst my interest in US politics is more in the what impact did that have on the different US presidential elections in the 1960s. So I think it's a coincidence rather than cause and effect.
1: You said in an interview of 10 years ago...
0: Uh-oh, is that, that, that is the second most ominous thing anyone can <laughs> say to a politician. The most ominous is, Michael Crick would like to speak to you, Yeah. But the second most ominous is, 10 years ago, you said...
1: Well, you, you said in your interview 10 years ago that the act you'd most like to see live... Would be Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Mm. I'm just wondering, in the interim, whether you've actually realised that
0: uh, I haven't, which illustrates my my um, slightly distant attitude towards music. Um, and I, although I have watched several several of his live concerts on online, you know, some of them are up on YouTube and and, and the like. Um, but yeah, I've it just it's the sort of thing that doesn't quite attract me. Uh, not for any particularly good reason really I suspect Um, and who knows you know if if maybe I'd won some prize draw 20 years ago that had given me tickets to a Bruce Springsteen concert and therefore I'd gone it might have been a habit that I would have fallen into but yeah maybe one day maybe one day
1: So it's time for your second album. Which album have you picked? It's another one with political overtones, I think.
0: Mm, So I've gone for Solid Bronze by Beautiful
1: South. Which is a greatest hits album. And I have to say, you're the first person, you are the first person to pick a greatest hits album since Jonathan Isabe, who was our first ever (laughs) guest. So you have that accolade. Excellent. So this is the Beautiful Mm. South. I think you love the band, but I know that you particularly like one song
0: exactly so i picked this because of the track good as gold um, and the album that good as gold appeared on you know originally in its own right meow i mean it's fine i'm more than fine it's very well done very successful all that but the other tracks on meow are not quite up there in my favorite uh, beautiful south tracks so that's why i've cheated a little bit gone for a greatest hits album because this way managed to get good as gold but also other things like Rotterdam uh don't marry her and so on um and particularly as you say it's it's good as gold stupid as mud was the one that I wanted to make sure featured on the album It's been said
1: that the song actually describes the grin and bear it attitude of the British public. Mm. Maybe it's more relevant than ever at the moment.
0: Yeah, although I treat its lyrics possibly wrongly, but hey, it's art. So, you know, it's up to the (laughs) it's up to the it's up to the person viewing or listening to the art to decide what it means. I, I treat it more actually as a uplifting song about perseverance. So, as you say, I think the conventional reading of the song is that it's almost a slightly pessimistic take on people's willingness to put up with crummy life and just carry on. But to me, the lines about, you know, carrying on with laughter, carrying on with crying, just carrying on is is almost an inspirational cry about just keep on trying to make the world a better place and and so for me it's much more like um we shall overcome in that i take it as being a we can you know we can we we can win out we just, we need to carry on plugging away Um, the other thing I like about Good As Gold is the music video that went with it with just this whole thing with the elephant. It's all quite bizarre. <laughs> in a way that yes. some of the music videos of that time were... The the thing I also... I always like those weird music videos of that era because you know that in almost all cases the really weird thing that you're doing was real as in it's not just CGI. So it's an elephant. <laughs> now you'd be thinking oh yeah it's probably just all cgi does nothing but you sort of think they did they actually get an elephant and stick him on the edge of the road it just it's what yeah whole is it anyone who's heard the song but not not seen or can't remember the music video do do go hunt it out it's a wonderfully weird and to me actually the music video reinforces the point that i view it as a quite an optimistic song because hurrah you know well do you think this should be the liberal democrat anthem yeah so i think i mean the stupidest mud bit maybe doesn't work quite so well as an anthem but the uh you know this this point about uh what are the words you know the hill to happiness is far too steep I'll carry on regardless I view that as that then the hill might feel far too steep but carry on walking up it and we'll get there eventually so that's that that's how I read that take a more optimistic take on, on the lyrics. And I think that nicely summarizes the uh, Lib Dem experience. It's, you know, first past the post and all of that, gives us a really steep hill to climb. But let's carry on chugging away and we will eventually get there. Don't
1: know what I'm doing here, will carry on regardless. Got enough money for one more beer, I'll carry on regardless. Though, but stupid as mud, he carry on regardless. The bleed is hot till there's no more blood, but carry on regardless. Carry on with laugh. Carry on with cry. Carry on with brown under moonlit sky. I want my love, my joy, my left my smile, my needs. Not in the star signs, all the harm that you read. I want my sun drenched with sweat. Mark Pack, I I feel that you don't naturally seek the limelight in politics or embrace it, but yet here you are in this position. Do you think that's true?
0: Yeah, I blame Shirley Williams in a way, uh, one of the founders of the SDP, former MP, former minister, um, because back in the early 1990s when I was at York, in fact, she was travelling between two different target seats, Uh, for the Liberal Democrats at that election and she had something like half an hour between changing trains while at York station so she said to the York local party look I'll have about half an hour if you want to do a photo op with me with the local press or whatever just you know very happy to do it and so I met her then and the thing that I really remember was her enthusiasm on the train station platform to walk up to complete strangers and talk to them about their arthritis Um, It may not have literally been arthritis, but it was that sort of both desire but enjoyment. You know, it's not just the willingness to do it, but the real enjoyment she got out of bounding up to complete strangers and getting into those sorts of conversations with them. And I think the very best of politicians have that about them. And that just isn't quite me. I don't quite have that, that same sort of driving force in terms of thinking, you know, I really would love to go out this afternoon and talk to a whole load of complete strangers, even about really banal things in their life. So we're not gonna see Mark Pack MP. I, I, you know, it's a dangerous time to make predictions about British politics, but I think this is a safe one that we can make. (laughs) And lastly, and a big question, in your
1: lifetime, will we see a, a Lib Dem government?
0: I'm pretty optimistic on that score and one of the reasons is i remember archie kirkwood back in the depths of the lib dem merger the disasters of the mergers that resulted in the lib dems being formed which you know nearly destroyed the party Um, you know him being asked well will the Lib dems ever be in government as if this was a self-evidently ludicrous question and you know within well within his lifetime uh, there were liberal democrat ministers in power uh in in westminster and indeed much sooner than that liberal and had ministers in power in in his own native scotland uh, so i think there's a there's a definite possibility I, I we do need to guard against complacency and think that just carrying on doing what we've always done is going to work or that somehow we just stick at it and the clock will turn and it will come to us as a fright a bit like the you know the the, the lyrics my misreading perhaps of, of the lyrics from the beautiful south is the hill is steep so we gotta Charge up it as quickly as we can, but there is a top to the hill, and we will get there.
1: Well, Mark, I'm so pleased that this morning we've managed to bring together some political, some musical, and some culinary, and uh, it's been wonderful to speak to you. Thanks so much for coming on the Politics of My Sound. My pleasure,
0: it's been an absolute joy, except for the quiz, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All the best. Thanks. Cheers. Bye.
1: The Politics of Sound. Well, my thanks to my guest, Mark Pack, and to you, faithful listener, for all the very kind comments you've said about the show. Do keep them coming in. We love to read them. Don't forget that you can check out all of our news on Twitter. That's at politics underscore sound. We'll be back on the 1st of July with another very exciting guest. See you then. Keep
0: cool and look after yourselves. it's Mark again I really hope you enjoyed that and if you did really encourage you to go and subscribe to Ian's Politics of Sound podcast you can find it in all your favourite podcast apps thank you once again for listening and look forward to next time